All right, well, this is the word of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Father, I certainly feel that this morning, and I'm sure your people here feel that too in the Christian ministry, that they are weak that they are afraid, and that there is much trembling. We feel that this morning, Lord. We feel our impotence. We feel our inability to produce results. Especially after praying about what Pastor Jim prayed about. As we look out over the landscape of our world, boy, do we feel powerless. But God, these things happen so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and empower our efforts in the Christian ministry. Come and empower me, Lord, because I feel very ordinary and very weak. Fill me with your Spirit. May May your word govern our emotions and our feelings and inspire faith in us as we consider Paul's ministry, the Corinthian culture that lines up so closely with our culture. We ask you to come, God, so that Christ crucified would be the preeminent message that we proclaim and also the lifestyle that flows from that message would very closely align. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we see it today on Twitter. We see it in Facebook, and we see it in advertising, in the political manipulative legal argumentation. We see it in TV talk shows when, when there's nothing to say, but they fill up an hour worth of TV time, we, we see it in brilliant monologues of late night comedians. We see it while we watch pop music groups with closely choreographed steps and absolutely nothing to say. But still, for some reason, we listen and we watch. Rhetoric is the professionalization of communication, and it works. The problem with this rhetoric is normally it's all about self-display for self-glorification. And and that's where Paul in our text draws the line. You know that Paul was a gifted, articulate, careful, passionate, learned, and fascinating man. But, But he knew the difference between preaching Christ and showing off. He knew the difference between winning disciples to Christ and attracting a following to himself. He knew the difference between getting the gospel out 
and branding his own recognizable way of saying it. Church, he, he knew that what you win people with is what you win them to. And my hope in prayer this morning is that you and I would adopt the same principle. A principle that should govern our evangelism, a, a principle that should govern our outlook on the Christian ministry, and certainly our dependency on the Holy Spirit to produce results in our church and in the world. Last week, Joshua did a great job showing how unimpressive the gospel message was and how unimpressive the members of the Corinthian church were. And in that sermon, we learned that God's way of saving His people undercuts all human pride. And what by the world's standards seems foolish was actually the very wisdom and power of God. So church, listen. If the gospel is unimpressive to the world, if the gospel is mocked and ridiculed, if it's considered nothing by those who think there's something, what should the messenger of the gospel adopt as his style of speech or his philosophy of ministry? Should the messenger of the gospel or messengers of the gospel, which is all of us here are Christians, should we take our cues from the world? Should you and I find out what works best, even if it removes the offense of the cross, and then do it? Should we look at the Christian life, life pragmatically? And what about the way that we package the gospel? Should the messenger and his or her method be one of strength and ability? Should it be polished and powerful, or should it be unimpressive and ordinary, yet empowered by someone else? Namely, God Himself. So my attempt this morning is to thoroughly convince you of the latter. Because, church, weakness and ordinariness and unimpressiveness is what most consistently represents you and me. Believe me, I, I looked at myself in the, more, in the mirror this morning. I looked at my meager attempts at preparing this sermon. I double-checked the cool-a-meter this past week, and you know what I came up with? I'm a pretty mediocre guy in the, the world's eyes. And what about all of you? What assessment have you come, with, come up with after examining your greatness? Is it any better than mine? But if I'm reading Paul correctly, God loves to use people like us. God loves to use our faithful, meager attempts to speak and live for Him and turn the world upside down. How? How does He do this? Because God is behind all our attempts to obey Him and proclaim the message of the gospel. Last week, the message was titled, The Unimpressive Gospel, and the title of this sermon this morning is called, The Unimpressive Messenger. I have two points. The first point is, The Unimpressive Messenger. We see that in verses 1 through 2. And then point number 2 is his unimpressive method, verses 3 through 4. First, the unimpressive messenger. So just by way of reminder, these believers in Corinth were being tempted by certain teachers to elevate eloquence, to value performance, to celebrate external grandiosity, and to be enamored, we learned last week, by celebrity status. And Paul, in the previous verses showed the Corinthians that both the message of the cross 
and their very existence contradict their current heart posture regarding wisdom. So verse 1 there is the continuation of his argument from verse 31 about God-centered boasting. And Paul basically says to the Corinthians, brothers and sisters, through the means of the cross and because of the fact that God chose you, God has eliminated human boasting. You see there in verse 31, the only thing that left is left to do is to boast in the Lord. And then look at verse 1 there, chapter 2. He says, and I, for my part, when I came to you, I exemplify the same reality. So, so Paul, when he came to them, he didn't boast in himself. Here we have undertones of chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul describes his preaching as not with words of eloquent wisdom. When Paul arrived in Corinth, he, he already knew the culture. He already knew what they prized. He already knew what they celebrated. And Paul would have none of it, especially because he didn't come to proclaim himself, but Christ Jesus. Or our text says the testimony of God or the witness of God or the mystery of God. Now this word testimony and the fact that Paul says of God captures something of the revelation that God gave to Paul. You know that a revelation is something that is revealed to someone from outside of themselves. Okay, something that was not previously known. So, so Paul's admission is this, what I received from God I proclaim to you. In other words, Paul is saying, I didn't arrive at the gospel through personal reflection or study. No, the mystery is truth revealed by God, not truth discovered by human investigation and argument. So humans don't find this truth. It finds them. And therefore, because it finds them, it makes them humble. And it follows that when he proclaimed it to them. You see there in our text, he didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. Friends, when Paul came, his conduct matched his message. His conduct matched his message. Paul was no more impressive than his message of a crucified Savior. Later on, we find in 2 Corinthians 10.10, that some were actually saying of Paul, quote, in person, he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Also, we find out in Galatians chapter 4 that when he came to the Galatian church, he says, when I first came to you, I came to you out of physical infirmity. So when Paul came, he did not come with high-sounding arguments. He didn't come with excessive words or Words that were fiery or loud or big words that wooed the crowds. No, no, he didn't try to bring attention to himself. His rhetoric and his eloquence weren't ends in themselves. If you remember last week, Joshua taught us that the sophist, the present, presentation of these famous speakers, their, their, their famous speaking was ends in themselves. So it was all about their performance. It was all about the presentation. But for Paul... His rhetoric and his eloquence were used as vehicles to carry the content of the gospel to the Corinthians. Remember, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, not the instrument that it comes through. The condition of the instrument is important, but it's not the most important. 
The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And in Corinthian culture, friends, listen, external performance and physical beauty were elevated to the point that if you had both, then you had the material of what it took to become a celebrity and to have a great following. But Paul, when he was in synagogue or when he was in home, he did not preach himself. He was focused on another, namely Christ Jesus there and him crucified. Listen to what David Garland in his commentary says. Quote, preaching the gospel in ways that exhibit human wisdom would be an expression of self-exertion or self-assertion, excuse me and would thus go directly against the content of the gospel. Now, now I find that very compelling. Why would asserting ourselves go directly against the content of the gospel? Well, because the content of the gospel is God-centered. It's not man-centered. The, the gospel is God's purposes to save. God's prerogative. God's initiating saving work through the crucified Savior. The quote goes on to say, The gospel always points beyond humans to God and Christ and becomes garbled whenever humans exploit it instead to headline themselves as its stars. And church, you know this. We can't get on social media these days and not see that many Christians and many Christian leaders are treading, or better yet, trending, very dangerously towards this polished veneer of Christianity, where hipness and coolness and, and self-expression that isn't making the world say, what a beautiful Savior, but instead, what a beautiful, wonderful leader or speaker or church. I mean, you got to go and look at their building. you got to listen to their music. you got to listen to their band. you, you got to check out their programs. Friends, Paul used no edits for himself or his ministry in Corinth. He didn't have original, vivid, vivid warm, vivid cool, dramatic, mono, silver tone filters. No, by the grace of God, he was as he was. He didn't try to cover up his weaknesses. Because Christ, surely did not cover up His on the cross. What filters do you have up that could be hindering people from seeing Jesus? How do we want people to see us? How are we presenting ourselves? Are, are we putting makeup on the gospel of Christ? Can people see Jesus? Or hear Jesus? Or can they hear us? This is, this is hard questions for me to ask this morning because as I do, I'm implicating myself here. And I, I want you to know that, that I'm not against any of these things per se, but what I'm against and I, what I feel Paul is against is when efficiency and excellency and professionalism or smooth showmanship or a polished veneer become more valuable than the sober-minded reckoning over what it means to focus long and hard at Christ and Him crucified. So Paul, he made a choice. He made a choice, knowing the culture, knowing what they were looking for, what they prized. Verse 2, he resolved. 
He resolved to know nothing among them except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Now let me give you a couple of things that Paul is not doing here. He isn't adopting an anti-intellectualism. He isn't showing his incompetence or his ineptitude. No, we know that Paul is one of the most brilliant, most intelligent men of his day. Learning at the feet of the foremost religious scholar, Gamaliel, he would have been on par with any philosopher in Corinth. It also doesn't mean that Paul is incapable of speaking clearly and persuasively, knowing that in other passages we see that Paul was able clearly to articulate the gospel powerfully and very persuasively. No, Paul here is settling in his heart that his conventions of preaching the gospel would not jeopardize the gospel by adopting eloquence or rhetoric that does not reinforce the message of a crucified Messiah. Church, Paul would not let the fear of man get in the way of faithfully proclaiming a crucified Savior who is the power and the wisdom through which God calls his elect. And so Paul, in, in every interaction with this church and with the city of Corinth and with any other city, Paul always brought everything back full circle, no matter what topic he was discussing, to Christ and him crucified. So Paul, we learn in this text, was, was cross-centered and he was gospel-centered long before it was ever cool. So what, what gets in our way of sharing the gospel? There are many things that get in my way of sharing the gospel. Fear of not being polished enough. The fear of not knowing what to say. Letting cultural expectations of acceptance and professionalism and, and achievement and inclusivity tempts me influences me away from speaking about the more odious parts of the gospel. So, has, have we been gathering our self-worth externally? Have we been living our lives dependent upon the judgments of the people outside of ourselves, fearing what they may think if we begin talking with them about a crucified Savior who died for sinners like us? There is no gospel without a crucified Savior. Friends, there is no gospel without blood. There is no gospel without a world reckoning with its real, personal sins against its creator. There's no gospel without judgment. Many years back, Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. But friends, it only wins at the expense of God's only begotten Son, crucified for us. Not because God will overlook sin and accept everyone into heaven. So, is our confidence in ourselves or in the power of the message? Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul is our example for Christian preaching and proclaiming. But not only does Paul outline the message he preaches in Corinth and in every other church, he also helps us to see the method of Christian ministry that logically flows 
from the message of Christ crucified. Point two, the unimpressive method. And friends, this method was not celebrated in Corinth, and it surely is not celebrated in our culture today. In verse 3, Paul says, look there, that he came to them in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. Now, now how was Paul weak? Well, there, there are a number of opinions, but could it be his physical weakness? I mentioned earlier that Paul had physical weakness when he came to the Galatians. But the, but the Greek word for weakness gives us a more general view. It's more likely that Paul means something like this. When I came to you, church, I immediately experienced how insignificant I was in your estimation of me. I felt small when I was with you. I felt inadequate when I was with you. I felt inferior when I was with you. Calvin, in his commentary, says his weakness then may include any of the following possibilities that made him or others question his sufficiency for the task. An unimpressive presence, a repellent physical malady, his toiling with his hands, his relative impoverishment, his vulnerability to persecution, his refusal to play to the crowd's desire for oratorical performance in his preaching, and any number of other things. But listen to what Calvin says. He goes on and says, But trying to specify what exactly Paul's weakness was could sidetrack us from grasping his point, and it's this. It's the nature of the cross that it cannot be preached elegantly and brilliantly in a culture that celebrates status and influence. It can only be preached in weakness. And Paul says, this is how I was with you. I was with you in weakness and in much trembling and fear. In Acts 8, 8 through 9, Paul had a vision one night where Jesus came to him and encouraged him to keep on preaching. Friends, he needed encouragement because as he looked at the enormity of the city and the task of preaching, where influence and performance and position and celebrity status were so important, it caused him to fear and tremble at the enormity of this task. But friends, in, in his second letter, he writes this. We see, we see in his second letter in chapter 12 that his weakness wasn't compounded by focusing on his weakness. He writes, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's weakness pushed him into the strength Christ provides as he ministered in Christ's name. It did not cause him to shrink back in fear, but instead grow strong in faith. This should cause you and me to be very encouraged, church. If the Apostle Paul was, quote, with them in weakness, fear, and much trembling, then it must have been God's strength that he was depending on. And if it was God's strength that he was depending on, then this resource is reserved for you and me as well. So if you're here this morning, I want to ask you, have you embraced your weakness in Christian ministry? 
Have you embraced your weakness in Christian ministry? I'm not talking about Sunday morning. I'm talking about the ministry that Christ has called you to each and every day of the week. Young moms, young dads, I'm, I'm asking myself the same question. Have you embraced your weaknesses in your parenting? Or young married couples or older married couples, have you embraced your weaknesses in your marriages? Do you feel weak around your non-Christian friends? Do you, do, you feel, do you feel weak as you stand in the current of intellectualism, individualism, and pluralism at your job or at your school? Do you feel weak at home? Do you feel weak in your marriage? Do you feel weak in your parenting? Are you just aware of your inability? Is there fear and trembling as you consider the enormity of the task of bringing the message of a crucified Savior to a cultured crowd of doctors and professors or a blue-collar crowd of painters and plumbers? I do. I feel my weakness. I always have felt my weakness. In 2010, I was a full-time painter. I quickly realized that I was working amongst men that couldn't care less for my Christianity. And one was a churchgoer and adopted religion to get the girl, and the other was an antagonistic anarchist who hated everything to do with Christianity. And here I was. There was three guys. I was in the middle. I was a young man who was, by God's grace, seeking to live all of my life for Jesus. I'll tell you what happened. Revival didn't strike out, I'll tell you that. That year was a year of school and weakness. I was mocked for my message of Christ crucified. Very rarely was I ever able to get a full sentence in to clarify why I believe the gospel to be the truth that would set people free. I was ridiculed for my convictions, my lifestyle. I didn't lie. I wasn't going to cut corners. I was ridiculed about my convictions of pure speech and for my desire to live honestly before all men. Every single day, and Andrea can attest to this, every single day I left humbled, humbled to the ground because of how weak I was to change anyone by my eloquence, or to persuade these guys by any method I constructed, any strategy that I tried to come up with. But was I failing? Was I failing in Christian ministry? Was I doing something wrong? I mean, should I start compromising the message of the gospel? Should I, should I join in with their jokes? Friends, listen, when I spoke to them about Jesus, the Bible, or anything spiritual, my voice shook. And very often I stuttered. But just because I was afraid, and just because I stuttered, and just because I was weak and trembling, should I tone down my lifestyle? And the stories about God's grace that saved me. Was I failing? There wasn't any results. 
But was I failing? Or friend, friends, was I merely experiencing the natural conflict associated with the message of Christ crucified and the lifestyle that flowed from it? A year later, one of them called me. The older gentleman wanted to talk to me about his marriage that was falling apart. The man who mocked me, ridiculed me, was now asking for my help. But I couldn't see it at the time. I thought I was failing. Friends, it seems like God was working through my weakness. It seems like God was taking the foolishness of what I was saying and affecting people deeply. During this time, I rediscovered with freshness something Peter said in his first letter. Listen to this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It rests upon you. You're blessed if you're ridiculed for the name of Christ. So we've established that Paul's method of ministry was done in weakness. And as verse 4 says, his preaching was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, how did the Spirit demonstrate his power among the Corinthians? Was it by amazing displays of miracles done through Paul's ministry? It's not likely because Paul is confronting the performance-oriented culture in this church. What seems more in line with the context of these verses, or these two chapters, is that the demonstration of the Holy Spirit is seen in the Corinthians' conversion. Paul says, listen, church, you want proof of God working among you? Look around. You can look around. Look around at each other. Corinthians, you are the miracle. Corinthians, you are the proof. And I would say, Grace City Church, you're the proof. You're the miracle. Your conversion is a miracle. The power in this context is about moral conviction, not miraculous display. Power in this context is about an inward change of heart rather than an outward display of performance based on human wisdom and knowledge. Listen, the power that came from Paul's preaching is what enabled the Corinthians to believe, and it came through the Spirit of God, not through Paul, irrespective of Paul's appearance, irrespective of Paul's performance. The existence of a church in Corinth was a demonstration or proof, in the original it says this, of the Holy Spirit's power at work among them. This is what the Holy Spirit does, church. This is what the third person of the Trinity is known for. Coming in under people's radars, under their prejudices, entering into their minds and hearts, and proving that Christ was crucified for them. With power. With power. But why did Paul preach this way? He answers that question in verse 5. So that their faith, so that your faith, my faith, would not rest in human wisdom, but in God's power. This verse looks back at chapter 1, verse 17, and closes off this section with a bookend. 
To rest your faith on God's power is equivalent to not emptying the cross of its power to save. Friends, to have your faith rest on God's power in this context is to believe that the work of Christ on the cross is the way of salvation. It's to embrace the way the Holy Spirit uses our weakness to exhibit the power of Christ through us as we set out each day to live among a world that needs Christ, but is looking for salvation in all of the wrong places. It's, it's resolving to reject any trust in ourselves or in human wisdom and to trust in the Holy Spirit's power. Church, listen, consider what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, the work of God is often carried on very successfully when yet it is carried on very silently and without the assistance of human force. The gospel multiplies and the church is built not by the power for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but by the spirit of the Lord of heaven's armies, whose work on men's consciences is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Thus, the excellency of the power is of God and not of man. When instruments fail, let us therefore leave it to God to do His work Himself by His own Spirit. You may know this story, but there is a story of Charles Spurgeon testing an auditorium in which he was going to speak one evening. He stepped into the pulpit and he loudly proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. Well, satisfied with the acoustics, he left. Well, he didn't know this, but up in the galleys of this large auditorium were two men, one of which was not a Christian, or two of which were not Christians. One of these men was pricked in his conscience by the verse Spurgeon quoted, and later that day became a Christian. Such is the penetrating power of God's eternal word. No wonder that Paul is so insistent on our preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Church, the gospel is unimpressive. Paul was unimpressive. And Paul's method was unimpressive. And all of us, aren't we? As we look into the mirror and see our native weaknesses, our natural inborn anxieties, our struggle with indwelling sin. We're weak. We're unimpressive. And in thinking about evangelism, boy, do I feel weak. Personal evangelism, I feel very impotent. But what if we were to tell our friends or that coworker, or that antagonistic family member about our weaknesses? What if we were to tell them about our insecurities when it comes to sharing with them our love for Christ and our desire to see them know His sacrificial love? What if we were to ask them to excuse our inability to say it well? What if we were to ask them to please try 
and understand that what we say comes from the depths of our heart for them. Friends, very often, they will believe our sincerity before they believe our gospel and be moved by what we have to share. The Christian who thinks that by mere theology and force of argument that he can persuade the world at the end of the day is a man who has no power over men. Church, the world needs Christians who can feel. Christians who are certainly doctrinally sound, but Christians of heart, who are aware but not paralyzed by their weakness. Christians who are aware of how feeble they are. Christians who can sympathize with the timid and the sorrowful. Spurgeon says, It is a very blessed thing if a Christian can weep his way into his friend's soul or even stutter a path into their hearts. So Grace City Church, do not be afraid of being weak. Do not be afraid of being weak. In all areas of your life, Embrace your weaknesses. But rejoice to be able to say with Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Well, Holy Spirit of God, without you, Christian ministry would be impossible. We would be loud sounding gongs. We would be drums beating with no tune. And the world would be going to hell without any hope. But Jesus, you did not leave us as orphans. You came to us. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is what convicts the hearts of men of their sin. The Holy Spirit is our counselor and our comforter. The Holy Spirit is what enlivens our worship, enlivens our words, takes this gospel message and makes it living words that penetrates the hardness of a heart of stone. The Holy Spirit also empowers us in our marriages, in our parenting, in our ministries. The Holy Spirit uses men and women who acknowledge, accept, and even embrace their weaknesses. Not as hindrances to the ministry, but no, Lord, as the means through which you're going to get the job done. You use our weaknesses. So help us not to be ashamed of them. Help us not to throw covers over them because we're ashamed of what people may think about us. No, no, help us. Throw the cover off because in Jesus we are fully accepted, fully clothed. Come, Holy Spirit, empower Grace City Church so that we can proclaim with boldness from our weakness a crucified Savior and so see the world turned upside down. In Jesus' name, amen.